There's a lot of good theology in those songs this morning as we celebrated God's wondrous plan of redemption. Good morning to you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. And we're going to complete our study of this book today by looking at a couple of verses in the fourth chapter. I invite you for the moment to follow along as I read uh, this chapter in its entirety. Again, that's the book of Ruth, uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, And from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. 
Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And so what have we seen to this point? Well, we know that there was a famine in the land of Judah, and so Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons decided to leave Judah, head eastward to the other side of the Jordan River into the land of Moab. Once there, Elimelech dies. Their two sons, Malon and Chilion, take wives for themselves from among the Moabites. But eventually, both of those sons, Malon and Chilion, also die. And say, Naomi, Naomi is left alone. She has lost her husband. She has lost her two sons, left alone with two daughters-in-law. She hears that the Lord has visited his people back in the land of Judah. And so she decides it's time to return home. Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, stays put in the land of Moab. But Ruth, her other daughter-in-law, accompanies her back to the land of Judah. Once there, they're poor. The, the, the only alternative, the only choice they have is for Ruth to go out into the fields and to glean behind the workers in the fields, seeking to glean, gather enough food to feed herself and her mother-in-law, Naomi. But she ends up in the field of Boaz, who is a kinsman. Boaz sends her some not-so-subtle signs, messages, if you like. Naomi picks up on this, and she counsels Ruth to approach Boaz in the dead of night, uncover his feet while he is sleeping, and once he awakens, to invite him to cast his wings, his garments, over her, that is to claim her as his own, his wife, because he is a kinsman redeemer. Someone else is closer to Naomi and Ruth in terms of relatives. So Boaz knows that he has a responsibility to first go to that man. We just read of what happened He approaches that man. That man is willing to assume responsibility for for that land that belonged to Elimelech, but he's not willing to assume responsibility to marry Ruth because he is not interested in perpetuating a name for Elimelech and Malon and have that land pass to that son. He's not interested in doing that. But Boaz, who has an interest in Ruth and has, I would say, a love for Ruth, is willing to do both, to purchase the land, to redeem Ruth, that is to take her as his wife. Now we've covered all of that in our exposition and in our study of this book. What we come to toward the end of this chapter is the most important verse in the entire book. And I'm speaking of verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The most important verse, the key verse in the entire book. We're going to get there eventually. And we're going to consider, we're not going to belabor it, but we are going to consider briefly this morning the glory of God in his plan of redemption, or what we might call redemptive history. We sang of it this morning. 
beautiful, the, the, the words that we, we, we sang together and, and this celebration of God's covenant love and that redemption that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to get to in verse 17 eventually. But what I want to do just for a few moments is consider another important verse in this chapter, and I'm speaking of verse 13, where we read the following. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The phrase I want us to hone in on, those words, the Lord gave her conception. I want to hone in on that because this past week, I've been, I've been meditating upon that, that phrase. I mean, that phrase is like a big rock. You know, you drop it in the lake and you watch the ripple effect. That phrase, there's a tremendous ripple effect, and we can't consider all of the implications and consequences of that phrase. But this past week, I've, I've been meditating on this, especially in the context of the fact that yesterday was the 38th year anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And, and, and the legalization of abortion in this country. And I couldn't help but be drawn to that statement and, and, and consider the contrast and the significance of that statement in light of the reality with which we are surrounded today. The Lord gave her conception. The truth is this. I've penned it down here. Let me share it with you. I'll repeat it a couple of times so that we're absolutely clear. I've worded this in the language of Psalm 139. God knits together every human being in his or her mother's womb so that every human being is fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me repeat that. God knits together every human being in his or her mother's womb so that every human being is fearfully and wonderfully made. As of yesterday, 38 years since that Supreme Court decision. Uh, Since that time, it is estimated that there have been 1.5, so 1.5 million abortions in the States per year. You do the math, that comes close to 60 million abortions in the past 38 years. I'm not sure what the population is in in Texas, but it's nowhere near that. You're talking about a number that exceeds the population of this state. 30% of all pregnancies in our day are terminated. 30% of all babies conceived today are aborted. What do we say to that? What do we say in the light of the word of God and this this tremendous truth expressed almost in passing and yet is, is weighty in terms of its repercussions, the Lord gave her conception. I want to affirm a number of things this morning, seven or eight, and I trust the Lord will will rekindle in us a concern for this entire entire issue and stir our hearts as to its its significance 
and stir in us brokenness for our country, for our society, in which such a thing is so widely perpetuated today. So let me affirm the following. Firstly, as Christians, we reject the argument that abortion is a better alternative than giving birth to an unwanted child. We reject it. The reason we reject it is very simple. There is no such thing as an unwanted child. There are people in this room who would adopt this very moment. There are people in this room who would sacrifice finances, comforts, and all else under heaven to take children into their family and love them and assume them as their own. And so we reject, we outright reject the argument that abortion is a better alternative than giving birth to an unwanted child. Let me repeat why. There is no such thing as an unwanted child. We represent merely a drop in the proverbial ocean of those across this country who would be willing to take children who are not their own biologically into their own home and claim them and love them as their very own. Secondly, as Christians, we reject the argument that abortion is a woman's right to choose. We reject it. Reject the notion, the argument, that abortion is a woman's right to choose. I cannot choose to drink and drive without suffering the consequences. I cannot choose to discharge a firearm on my neighbor's front lawn without suffering the consequences. You see, my right to choose is restricted by the laws of the land whenever it threatens human life. And so this argument, that a woman's right to choose usurps the sanctity of human life and the preservation and protection of human life is absolute, sheer, utter nonsense. It makes no sense at all. We reject it. We reject the argument that abortion is a woman's right to choose. Thirdly, as Christians, We reject the argument that abortion is necessary for controlling world population. You'll hear that a lot today. You hear it a lot in the context of the United Nations and exporting abortion to other countries, developing countries, as a necessary method of of controlling world, world population. And you will hear it all the time now that, that there are too many people in this world and placing too much stress on the earth. That, too, is a fallacy. This, the earth's problem is not, is not human population. The earth's problem is human depravity. We dare not confuse the two. This world is not overpopulated. This world is grossly and sorely mismanaged as it awaits its king. And so we reject that idea that abortion is necessary for controlling world population. In 1992, Allison and I lived in the country of Angola, southwest Africa. The country of Angola by itself has the agricultural capacity to feed all of Africa. 
One country there in southwest Africa has the agricultural capacity to feed all of Africa by itself. Why doesn't it? Human depravity. That's the only answer. Greed. Greed has ruined and destroyed that land. And so you'll hear it, you'll hear it today, and you'll hear people, you know, with the glasses on the end of their nose pontificating, oh, the world is overpopulated. Don't buy it, friend. That simply is not true. The world does not suffer from overpopulation. The world suffers from gross mismanagement due to human sin and depravity. And so we reject it. We reject the argument that abortion is necessary for controlling world population. As Christians, we affirm that abortion is morally reprehensible. As one advocate of the pro-choice movement says, I do not think terminating a pregnancy is wrong. A potential person is not a person any more than an acorn is a tree. Do you know in the States it's illegal, it's illegal to, uh, to crush the, the egg of the bald eagle? It's illegal. It is legal to crush the egg in the mother's womb. That, 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 is the moral, that, that is the moral confusion that pervades our society where the egg of a bird is protected. And woe to you if you do anything detrimental to it. But the egg of the woman conceived in her womb, a life, a life has no protection, no rights, no recognition at all according to the law of the land. We view abortion as morally reprehensible. At three weeks, the baby's heart begins to beat. At six weeks, the baby has brain waves. At eight weeks, the baby begins swallowing. At 12 weeks, the baby's organ systems are functioning. The baby has skeletal structure, nerves, eyelids, nails, and fingerprints. At 14 weeks, the baby's heart pumps several quarts of blood through his or her body each day. At 18 weeks, the baby is perfectly formed. Yet at any point during that time, and for many weeks after, it is legal to dismember or do whatever is necessary to terminate, abort, kill, that baby. That is morally reprehensible. Morally reprehensible. We affirm that. Whomever we might offend, whomever we might upset, we affirm as Christians that abortion is morally reprehensible. As Christians, we affirm that abortion confirms what the Bible says concerning man's utter darkness. It confirms what Christ uttered centuries ago, John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. We come by it honestly, in other words, because we are of our father, the devil, and the devil has been a murderer from the beginning. Abortion is the termination of a human being. 
made in the image of God, created for the expressed purpose of exalting, glorifying, and magnifying God. Abortion is, therefore, a direct assault upon God himself. As Christians, we affirm that God's wrath gathers like the waters behind a great dam. And we affirm that the day will come when the dam will break, the waters will surge forth, and it will consume and sweep away all that lay in its path. And yet we also affirm as Christians that God abounds in mercy and compassion. What do we say to the woman who has had an abortion? Numerically speaking, simply numerically speaking, according to the the figures, it is likely we have women in our midst, just according to the numbers, who have had abortions. What do we say to the woman who has had an abortion? I think we say the following. You have committed murder, but it is not the worst thing you've ever done. The worst thing you've ever done is Calvary's cross. The worst thing I've ever done is Calvary's cross, in that it was our sin that nailed Christ to the cross, and it was our mocking cry that was heard as he hung there suspended between heaven and earth. That is the worst sin we have ever committed. And it eclipses all other sins. And yet in that very death, that same death atrocity, we find our only hope through his shed blood. Beverly Smith McMillan. She opened the first abortion clinic in Jackson, Mississippi, was later converted by God's grace, wrote the following. The good news that makes the gospel so relevant today is that God forgives. I know from personal experience that the blood of Jesus can cover the sin of abortion. There is no stain too deep. No stain too wide that the blood of Christ cannot wipe away and cleanse and make new. We affirm, or rather, we call, we call as Christians upon our government to fulfill its God-given mandate, which is to protect and preserve human life. Now give attention to these words. I'm going to read them because I dare not venture off here, I may never find my way back. Our government's main responsibility, main responsibility, isn't to provide education. It isn't to establish social programs. It isn't to ensure retirement savings, to strengthen labor unions, to sponsor the arts, to provide foreign aid, to subsidize banks, to help the homeless, to build houses, to establish daycares, or anything like that. First and foremost, our government's main responsibility is to protect and preserve human life. That is human government's God-given mandate. In Genesis 9, 
Romans 13, to protect and preserve human life based upon this self-evident truth that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. We judge our elected officials on that basis alone. On that basis alone. We call upon them to fulfill their God-given mandate. Finally, as Christians, we pray that God would visit us, his people, with days of refreshing, transforming us so that we might be his agents of transformation. We pray that our society might awaken to this great evil, turn from it with heartfelt repentance, and embrace, uphold, and defend the sanctity and dignity of human life. Again, the main, the main truth, the bedrock, underlying, underpinning all of those statements, God knits together every human being in his or her mother's womb so that every human being is fearfully and wonderfully made. And there we have a glorious example of it right there in verse 13 of our text. So Boaz, he took his bride, Ruth, She became his wife. He went into her. And the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. son. Now it's going to be difficult to do, but I'm going to ask you to do it nevertheless. I'm going to ask you to shift gears now and return with me to where I began, stating that verse 17 of this chapter is the most important verse in the entire book. And so let me, let me read it again for you and take note of what the author says here, what it is he declares, and what it is he's trying to get across, convey. Again, that's verse 17 of Ruth chapter 4. And the women of the neighborhood gave him, that is this child born to Boaz and Ruth, gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So here the author of this book, whomever he was, he tells us two things. Firstly, he tells us that there was this celebration, that the women of the city, of their neighborhood, neighborhood share in the excitement of this new birth, this new baby. They assume responsibility for naming this child. They give him this name, Obed, and they celebrate together, a son has been born to Ruth. No, a son has been born to Naomi. You see, the book is actually misnamed. This isn't the book of Ruth. This is the book of Naomi. The story is about Naomi from start to finish. It is Naomi who ventures into the land of Moab and loses everything, her husband and her two sons. It is Naomi who then returns with this daughter-in-law, Ruth. It is Ruth who marries Boaz. They have a son, and yet this son is identified as Naomi's son. Why? Because it is God's temporal blessing upon Naomi. It is demonstrating this wonderful fact that Naomi 
who had lost everything. Naomi, who for all intents and purposes thought her life was practically over, returns to to her homeland, tells the women of the city, no longer call me Naomi pleasant, call me bitter, Mara. And yet we see God wonderfully orchestrating all events in her life. The salvation and the call of Ruth. Ruth just happening to end up in the field of Boaz. Boaz standing forth as the kinsman of Redeemer. Boaz and Ruth marrying. God giving conception. And now this son. And here in this son we have the, the, the proof that God had been working all things. No matter how detrimental, no matter how painful, God had been working all things for good for Naomi. And there we see his loving kindness, do we not? We see the wonder of his power in providence. We see his abounding faithfulness to Naomi. And yet you know something? That isn't what makes this verse the most important verse in the book. That is wonderful. Don't misunderstand me. But it is not what makes this verse the most important verse in the book. It is the second statement that we find here. The second thing the author tells us right at the end of verse 17. He, that is Obed, was the father of Jesse. The father of David. That's what makes this verse the most important verse in the entire book. Why? Because with that single statement, and then following the brief genealogy in verses 18 through 22 to demonstrate the connection here, generation to generation, the author of this book, with that single statement, he, he, he rips it, if you like, out of the temporal, and he places it on another plane entirely. And, and this is such a, an important lesson for us. He, 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 he beckons the reader... The, the individual who's entered into this beautiful narrative, and, and, and yes, we celebrate with Naomi, and we think, oh, we all love a good, happy ending, but that's not the most important thing. He takes the book and these, these events that engulf Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, and he elevates them into a far greater sphere, namely the eternal plan of redemption. And remember the context of the book of Ruth. It takes place when? In the days of the judges. The days of the judges marked by what? There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And yet in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of the sin, in the midst of the rebellion, in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the conflicts and the wars, the book of Ruth proves and demonstrates what? That even in the midst of what appeared to be absolute sheer chaos, God ruled. There was indeed a king in Israel, the king of kings and lord of lords. And here he was working through the relatively unimportant details in the lives of relatively unimportant people demonstrating this supremely important truth, God rules. And he rules singularly, And purposefully, for what end? The plan of redemption. Because with this mention of David, 
Yes, in our mind, we are forced to look to the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. But we are forced to look beyond David. As David himself, a mere man, a mere king, pointed to and prophesied of that coming king of kings. That in David we have this great messianic hope. The coming of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom of God, and all of the blessings and gifts and privileges that would accompany the coming of David's own seed. The seed of David, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman. Going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, we see God orchestrating it all. And even in the case of Naomi, these bitter providences, And how he worked wonderfully and miraculously in the midst of these circumstances. Always with this great end, this great design in view. His own plan, eternal plan of redemption. As it centers upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you have five statements in your insert sermon notes, and you were probably wondering if and when I was ever going to get to these. Here they are, and I'm not going to say much about any of them, but let me just rhyme them off for you here. God's purpose, God's design, God's plan in redemption. Firstly, God's purpose is to put all his enemies under his feet so that his goodness finally appears Over all evil. I'll repeat it. God's purpose, firstly, is to put all his enemies under his feet so that his goodness finally appears over all evil. And so we're given that great reminder in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, that the Lord Jesus now reigns in the midst of his enemies until they are made a footstool for his feet. That is God's purpose when it comes to the plan of redemption. Secondly, God's purpose is to restore all the ruins of the fall through Christ. His purpose is to restore all the ruins of the fall through Christ. As Peter tells us in his second epistle, according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens. And a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Thirdly, God's purpose is to gather in one all things in Christ. In heaven and in earth. His purpose, again, is to gather in one all things in Christ. That is, all things in heaven, angelic beings. All things in earth, human beings. That is, those who are in Christ. We have this appointed day when all will be gathered in one as Christ as his head. And Christ will for all eternity be the focal point of our celebration and of our worship. That is God's design. Fourthly, God's purpose is to perfect the glory of his people by Christ. His purpose is to perfect the glory of his people by Christ. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, 
what God has prepared for those who love him. Fifthly, God's purpose is to magnify the glory of the blessed Trinity in an eminent degree. We see that confirmed in Ephesians chapter 1. Most of you know this. In Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul revels in the doctrine of election, he ascribes all glory to God the Father. And then as he celebrates redemption, he again ascribes all glory to the praise of God's glory. And as he celebrates the work of the Spirit in sealing us for the consummation of our redemption, again he says it is to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the Father, to the praise of the Son, to the praise of the Spirit, to the praise of the eternal three in one. That that is what God has before him. He has this great design from before the foundation of the world. And that everything that transpires in life is subservient to that great plan of redemption. So one author writes, God has been causing everything in the state of mankind and all changes in the world from generation to generation to be subservient to this great design. And we have it confirmed. In the book of Ruth. Again, let me repeat it. The book of Ruth records the relatively unimportant details in the lives of relatively unimportant people demonstrating a supremely important truth. God rules over all. And he doesn't merely rule over all to bring temporal blessing. No. He rules over all in accordance with his own eternal plan of redemption as centered and focused in the Messiah, in Christ, the very Son of God. That is what the book of Ruth teaches us. Now, I don't know about you. I'll speak for myself. When I I get out of the nitty-gritty, the details, and beyond the temporal, up into the eternal, this increases my faith when I look at world events. History isn't circular and disorderly. History is linear and orderly. All things designed by God, governed by God, hurling forward to the summing up of all things in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this increases my faith when I look at my personal circumstances. Whatever bitter providences I might be passing through at present, Although I may never be given the eyes to see it in this life, I have this unshakable certainty that all befalls me, whether I can perceive it or not, whether I can understand it or not, all befalls me according to God's perfect design for me as it centers on this glorious plan of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know it's difficult to live like that. When we find ourselves like Naomi, in the midst of bitter providence, we face face numerous temptations. There are two in particular that we always face when things are not going our way. And when we find ourselves going under and in the valleys and in the midst of bitter providence, two temptations. The first is this, we're tempted to disobey. 
And you think, for example, of David, after Samuel has anointed him as, as king, but Saul is still the king, and Saul perceives David to be a threat, and so Saul is pursuing David, chasing him. He wants to kill him. And David, rather than consulting with the Lord, David, rather than being governed by God's word and God's will, what does he do? He runs to the Philistine, a place he should never have gone, looking for safety, looking for security. He perceives the Philistines aren't exactly thrilled to see him. There's talk of taking his life. And so what does David end up doing? He ends up acting like a crazy man groveling on the ground like a madman so that they think he's a fool, no threat, and send him away. Oh, friend, this is a great temptation, great temptation, that in the midst of bitter providence, the devil will tempt us to disobey, to do whatever we think is necessary to alleviate the suffering. Do whatever we think is necessary to get ourselves out from under this bitter providence in the hand of God. And how we must walk by faith and not by sight. And by the Spirit's help, by the Spirit's power, act like Naomi and Ruth in this book. Say, whatever comes, we will remain faithful to God and we will remain faithful to His Word. Yes, we seek relief. Yes, we seek to escape those bitter providences that come our way, but we must only do so within the parameters of God's word, and yet the temptation will be there. The temptation will be to disobey God, to do what is ever necessary, and to justify it in order to escape the suffering. Second temptation is this. We will be tempted to despair. And so you think of Elijah. There he is on the mount. And he experiences that tremendous victory in the defeat of the prophets of Baal. But no sooner has he that spiritual high on that mountaintop experience than he hears that Jezebel is out for his head. And so Elijah runs. He flees into the wilderness, into the, into, into the desert. And what is his cry? Lord, take my life. It's over. He's gone from that mountaintop experience to that valley, that terrible adversity whereby there's nowhere he can turn, nowhere he could go. Jezebel is out for him. And Elijah is overwhelmed by his circumstances and what it means and gets himself into such a state of despair and despondency whereby he actually asks the Lord to take his life. That is a very real temptation when we find ourselves in the midst of bitter providence. Extremely difficult to see what God is doing. Difficult to understand why, especially when there is nothing but resounding silence. And oh, the temptation to despair and despondency. But the solution, my friend, is what we are taught here in the book of Ruth. It is to look heavenward. It is by the sight of faith, not by the sight of the eye, to look to the eternal plan of redemption and set the circumstances of life, whatever it is we're going through, in a far greater context, on a far greater plane and level. And understand that although God may not reveal the exact why to me, that although there appears to be nothing but silence, That although I can't for myself make heads or tails out of it, 
I have this unshakable confidence, unwavering faith that there is an eternal plan of redemption focused upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day coming when all things will be summed up in him. And although I may not get it now, even what appear to be the most trivial events in my life are subservient to redemptive history. That's why Calvin wrote, and with this I will conclude. I think it's a good way to end our study this morning and to end our study of the book of Ruth. Ignorance of providence, says Calvin, is the ultimate misery. Ignorance of providence is the ultimate misery. The highest blessedness lies in knowing it. Our Heavenly Father, how we are so dependent as your children upon you to grant us such understanding. And so we pray that by your Spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and enlarge our faith as we meditate upon this wonderful theme of your providence and your ways among men. We thank you, our Father, that we as Christians are children of light, that we now walk in the light and that the fruit of the light is all that is good and right and true. And we pray that as we seek to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ, as we seek to walk according to your word, that you would help us and aid us to stand for truth, to reject error, to mortify unrighteousness, and to cultivate by your Spirit righteousness. We pray that we would walk according to your ways, that we would heed your wisdom, that we would be people of your book. And we seek this from you now, from your gracious hand, and we seek it from you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.